0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Authors on the Air. My name is Natasha Bajma. I'm filling in for Pam Stack today. You might recognize my voice from Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Authors on the Air is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have a great interview with Simon Stevenson. He's the author of Set My Heart to Five. He's a medical doctor, screenwriter, and now novelist. And we talk about his very special science fiction book that is both humorous, light, and dark all at the same time. So I hope you turn into the interview. I'm so thrilled to have Simon Stephenson on the show today. He's a medical doctor, Hollywood screenwriter, and published author. He's originally from Edinburgh, Scotland, and he's currently living in Los Angeles, California. Today we'll talk about his multiple fascinating careers, his journey as an author, and his latest book release, a humorous science fiction novel titled Set My Heart to Five, which just came out on September 1. Simon, welcome to Authors on the Air Global Radio.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: So I always love hearing how people started out and made it to where they are today. And I'm particularly eager to hear how you went from being a medical doctor to a screenwriter to a novelist, because that has to be a story. So why don't you tell us about it?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, so, so normally, normally when I tell my story is normally the, the, it's normally in a sort of a meeting about screenwriting, right? That you traipse your wares around the studios and you have to pitch yourself and the first question is always you know tell me about tell me about yourself so you know I always begin this by saying by telling these people that um just because my own life hasn't had any discernible structure at all please don't think I can't do structure in writing because um, uh, so um, so yeah I um as as you say I've I've done a few things um the really it goes back to the sort of interesting kind of pivot point is um, when you're in, in the UK, you go to medical school as your undergraduate degree. And that means that you make the decision to become a doctor a lot earlier than you do in the United States. And that's fine. If you're a intelligent, precocious 15 or 16 year old, um, if you're me and the first series of ER starts on television, just exactly at the wrong moment, um, you might choose to do ER because you, you know, you think that's what, that's what, that's what medicine's going to be like. Um, so, uh, um, I went off to university to do medicine um, and I found when I got there that I really missed books and reading and all these things that had actually always been been very important to me along the way. So, so, so I actually started writing properly in earnest in, in medical school and, you know, I have a slight it's like competitive bent to myself so the way that i did it was i was always entering competitions you know every time i saw a short story competition or a, you know a haiku competition i'll have a shot at that why not um uh, so 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 it was always um i was always entering things and then um i i started to kind of do okay and then i started to sort of place in some of these competitions and i never won anything but you know i was a finalist and things like that and um Eventually, uh, so I worked for my first year as a doctor, um, and that's the sort of, that's the important resident year in the UK. That's the year that you sort of get fully licensed and and all of that stuff. So I did that year. And then at the end of that year, I took six months out to um, write my great book of literary short stories, because what the world was crying out for was a book of literary short stories written by me when I was 23. Um, Thankfully, no one wanted to publish them because (laughs) if they did, well, I'm sure we wouldn't be sitting here today. Um uh but um one of them kind of through a a a combination of fortuitous circumstances, um we got the chance to make into a short film and I got to write the screenplay for that. And that kind of did okay in the you know, more, you know, British indie short film world. And off the back of that I got some it led to some work writing television. Um and the short version is that you know, for many years I kind of bounced back and forth between uh, writing in medicine, um, uh, until I think six or seven years ago, well eight years ago now. Um, I wrote a script about, uh, a screenplay about a, a depressed doctor who hated his job and desperately needed a change. Um, who knows where I got the idea for that one from? It just popped into my head, like, like magic. Um, and weirdly that one, um, You know, and and I've been writing screenplays for a long time and, you know, people always liked them, but, you know, nothing much really happened with them. And then that one really changed everything. That one, people liked it out here in Los Angeles. And suddenly I went from, you know, I couldn't get anyone to take a meeting with me in London. And suddenly I came out here and I had, you know, a a career. Um, So uh, um, I came out and I stayed on my friend's couch and and I stayed and um, I haven't really looked back. So, uh, so, yeah, it's been quite a while since I, since I worked in the hospital, I did I did volunteer to go back in this pandemic in, in both places, uh, in, in the US and in the UK. Um, and I think, thankfully, for everyone concerned, they didn't need me. So, uh, so yeah, I hope, I hope that continues. Um.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. It's, it's interesting how we, you know, go on a journey to do one thing and then we kind of get uh, directed in another direction. Um, I, I started out my college career studying German and German literature and then went on to do international relations, worked in national security, and now I want to be a writer. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, so,
1: so, but that's interesting because that means you're a sort of a left brain and right brain person as well. Yes. Be, be, because I know I know a lot of people who are, you know, their their first career is, is in something more sort of arts based, you know, they're, they're English majors or English teachers and, and and they plan to be a writer. But there's, um, there, there's a few less of us that are, you know, there are science people that, that, that become writers. But I think it serves us well. I, I, think, I think we're in a good spot.
0: I think so as well. I mean, you mentioned structure. So even though your life and my life may not have been as structured as others would like it, um, we somehow have that analytic side that I think lends itself to writing for sure. Um, so you just released a science fiction novel, Set My Heart to Five, uh, but it's not your first novel. You wrote one back in 2011, Let Not the Waves of the Sea, and it won all sorts of awards, and since then you haven't written another. So I'm just curious, why why did that happen that way?
1: Sure, no, it, it's it's a very good question. Um, uh, so that that first book was a, it was a memoir, and um, it was about the loss of my brother. Uh, I lost my my brother was a year older than me, um, and he died in the in the <laughs> tsunami in, in the Indian Ocean in 2004. I, I I really tried hard not to write it. So I w- w- when the tsunami happened, I had been you know just going back to what we're saying earlier I'd I'd made the move from medicine to television writing and I was doing that and kind of it wasn't the glory days of British television and it certainly wasn't the glory days of of my writing but nonetheless you know I had kind of reasonably steady work and I was sort of writing I I suppose slightly gentle slightly heartwarming comedies and uh, it seemed like there was going to be you know know, a a good career in that for a while Uh, and then I lost my brother and I kind of spent a year mostly in Thailand because he had been in Thailand and you know I found the need to travel there and understand what had happened um that again like kind of from the science perspective you know almost that that you know to be around those places and really just just try, try, try and fathom it um, and so uh when I came back to London after that first year I tried to go back to um to writing the writing the gentle comedies and i couldn't everything i wrote you know ended up being about death or grief or about <laughs> you, you know you know and of course you know if people if the script people are expecting coming in is a <laughs> you know, gentle comedy that just you know that does not work so um i went back to medicine um and then in the evenings and weekends i i started writing about losing my brother and i wrote it kind of genuinely not with the intention of publication but simply as a kind of a creative exorcism. Like I felt like I have to get this stuff out of me and until I do, I'm never gonna be able to go back and write gentle comedy. Um, And so I did, and you know, eventually, of course, it took on a bit of life of its own and people, you know, I'd shown it to a few friends and they'd liked what I was writing. And so I carried on and it, you know, got published. And when it became, when it was published, you know, there was this great moment where, you know, people liked it and it got these lovely reviews. And I kind of decided at that point, okay, well then, you know, so this means I'm a writer. I'm now a serious <laughs> writer and you know what serious writers do is they write novels so i'm gonna quit my job you know and i'm gonna you know just devote myself to to writing the great novel because that's that's what the world now needs from me <laughs> <laughs> and uh um, and i couldn't do it and and so i i probably spent a couple of years um because I, I had i had a little bit of money from from because the, the memoir had sold, I, I had a bit of money to support myself for a year or two, um, and I spent the best part of a couple of years um, trying to write a novel, and I probably started half a dozen novels, I probably got, you know, the first 20,000 words of, you know, all of them somewhere on a on a hard drive in a drawer. Um, and with hind- hindsight, like, I don't think any of them were particularly bad, but they just, none of them felt like, n- none of them felt like a story I desperately needed to tell. and. I think that, you know, really what was going on was I had felt that the story about my brother was just, I just had this, you know, profound need to tell it and nothing that I was going to write after that would kind of match up to that. Um, and so, you know, but I painted myself in a corner because the, you know, the money had kind of run out and I'd been away from medicine for a couple of years. and. Um, uh, you know, by this point I was living in my friend's spare bedroom and that was, that was kind of wearing thin as well. And, uh, he sort of, you know, he, he was great because he kind of took me aside and, you know, gave me a sort of a pep talk and said, you know, what's the plan? What are you doing? And, and, you know, he's, he's an architect. So again, that sort of structural logical thing. And he said, Look, you know, it's going to take years to write a novel. You, you know, you used to do the screenwriting and people used to like it, like, you know, you were seemed to be happier then. Why didn't do, why don't you try that again? Um and so I did and 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 I put my all into writing some screenplays. Um and and those took off. And then but which led to the move out here, and you know, of course you get very immersed in that in that screenwriting world very quickly, and it's kind of it's kind of a hamster wheel, and you know, I always wanted to step off and write a novel, but uh you can see all the other hamsters spinning on their wheels and you're kind of like well if, if i get off the wheel now then you know I, I'll, I'll never get back on so um yeah yeah i mean years passed you know and, and i got this um i moved to san francisco i got this job in san francisco and i spent a couple of years there and as that was coming to an end my feelings of wow i really need to write this novel were kind of you know really those feelings were becoming very strong and when i had the idea for this. Um, For the current book, for Set My Heart to Five, I really, for the first time since writing about my brother, I really had that same feeling that this is a story I'm going to tell, and I'm going to tell it as a novel, and I know I can finish it. Like, I know I'm not going to get to 20,000 words and say, what's the point? I'm not interested in this. Who else is going to be interested in it? Um, Yeah. that's quite a long answer, but it was quite a long winding period as well. Yeah,
0: definitely. So, you know, I think what people who've never written a novel don't necessarily understand is how much blood, sweat, and tears does go into a novel, how much time you spend, how, how long, what, what dedication that takes. And so, you know, you want to be passionate about your writing. Otherwise, it's very, very, very difficult. So I'm curious, because you've done so many screenplays and you've done now two novels, how are they different? How is writing a screenplay a novel different,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean you know, and, and I hate to say it because it sounds so reductive, but you know we're we're, we're scientists, so um, you know the simple length I think is is just such the huge thing, so you know my screenplays tend to run at fifteen to twenty thousand words, and a the current novel is about ninety five thousand words um so so just in terms of pure um, pure pragmatism um if you, you know, you can really, you know, if you, if you drink your coffee and you know what you're gonna write, you know, you can really crank out a screenplay in, you know, not actually that huge an amount of time. And so, you know, so, and sometimes that's my technique is, is, I'm a great believer in, you know, don't get it right, get it written. And I love to just, you know, I love to have something down that I can work from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, sitting around and thinking hypotheticals. Um, but then I think the, the challenge with that is that you can't really do that with a novel because, you know, no one can, no one can crank out, you, I mean, maybe maybe people, people can, I don't know, I, I certainly can't. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think that's such a huge thing. And then, but then in terms of the two disciplines, I think one thing that's been really good for me is with, with novel writing, you know, there seems to be this sense that, you know, the novelist is supposed to be this great solo creative genius, and you're supposed to go and lock yourself in your in your cottage in the Highlands of Scotland or your <laughs> or wherever people go in in America, and and uh, you know write your great opus and come back and present it. Um, whereas with with screenwriting, you know it's absolutely the opposite. So you know if you you know get a gig to write a screenplay for a studio you know, often, you know, I mean, you know, there'll be five meetings before you start writing and, you know, you'll all agree what you're going to write. And then sometimes they want to see an outline and they'll have thoughts on that. And, you know, and then the the script contract itself, your your contract will be for, you know, usually at least three drafts, you know, with the understanding that, you know, the first draft isn't going to be the perfect thing. And, you know, obviously as a writer, I I naturally kind of slightly rail against, you know, other people having too much input and, you know, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think, I think we, we all have to balance that. But I think just the sense of... I, I guess there's craft and there's art, isn't there? And and novels, I think, you know, by and large we tend to think of them as art and we don't, as you say, we don't kind of think about the craft and just about the the hard work that that, that goes into them, you know, because it's supposed to just be inspiration and you're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to flow through your weather with screenwriting, I think there's much more understanding that, you know, it's a craft and and it's kind of, you know, actually I think it has been good for me to sort of, you know, be open to other voices, you know, maybe earlier in the process than I would normally like, I think, you know, with those other books that I tried to write, the failed novels, I think, you know, I I doubt I even spoke to anyone about what I was writing, you know, it was a big secret because it was my big novel because I was the creative genius, (laughs) this one, I certainly, you know, much more, you know, spoke to a few, you know, a few people who I trusted about and said, you know, this is what I'm thinking about writing. You know, what do you think? And, and I think already I was so set on it. I wouldn't have been, you know, if someone had said, oh, that sounds like a terrible idea, what are you doing? Um, I probably wouldn't have, you know, paid that too much heed. But equally, you know, a few friends were able to say, oh, that sounds great. But, you know, I would think the pitfall might be this, or, you know, a book you should check out would be this, or, um, so, 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 so I think um, I, I think you know, for better or for worse, kind of some of those collaborative and you know, frankly, business type practices of screenwriting may maybe help me. That they, they, they may be purged some of my some of the earlier beliefs that were holding me back about you know having to be this great you know this great solo endeavor.
0: Yeah, I think I, I, I've i never written a screenplay. I, I definitely want to, um, but I have done a lot of nonfiction work um, in my career. And so it sounds very similar. A lot of people have something to say about your nonfiction work. It goes through multiple drafts, you have meetings, things like that. So I can definitely see how it's it's it makes you feel less precious about what you're creating.
1: I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And even the, you know, I, I imagine it's the same in the US, certainly in the UK where I'm from, the, the basic idea is that, you know you sell your if you're going to write a non-fiction book you often sell it on the basis of you know three chapters and an outline whereas a novel you know they want to see the whole novel and i think you know if you're if you're beginning with three chapters like of course people are going to have you know more 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 input and 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 more things to say and again i think it just goes to that you know that we seem to hold novels kind of slightly slightly to the side in terms of how special they are. And, and, you know, there is this magical process that mustn't be, mustn't be interfered with. But actually, I think the the demystification is probably, is probably, you know, very helpful. And, and I suspect, you, you know, like there's such a correlation between, you know, I've never done anything like an MFA, but, you know, they do lead to some, you know, some, some wonderful novels. And um, I imagine that, you know, working in that kind of environment, people probably do get a sense of, drafting and redrafting and, you know, being open to, open to input and things.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's turn to your new book. Um, set my heart to five. It's a science fiction novel, but not the typical sci-fi novel. So it's funny, light and dark. Uh, so it's set in 2054 the moon no longer exists because it was blown up, unfortunately, by Elon Musk, which is not out of the realm of possibility. Sorry, Elon. Um, People are locked out of the internet, which might be a good thing today. And I think I read somewhere that you call it a mystopia. So tell us about the genre you're writing in.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I should probably start with a confession, which is that, um, I mean, I have a great admiration for science fiction and I've certainly, you know, loved a lot of it and I've read a lot of it, but, you know, I, I I know enough about it to know that, you know, I can't really classify myself as a real science fiction person because I simply, you know, uh, I'm not as immersed in that world as, you know, some some of the writers and, 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 and readers are. So, um, uh, and partly I think that's, you know, why I'm saying that is that, um Sort of interested in the interplay of these terms of speculative fiction and science fiction, and and my understanding is that science fiction generally has to be a bit more accurate. So, uh, so, 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 I'm going to go ahead and call this speculative fiction. Um, uh, um, I think the um, and, and and the world is, is absolutely as you say um, the the, the mistopia thing. So, I mean, I love dystopias. You know, I've got shelves full of them. Um, but equally, you know, I, I definitely reach points where I'm, you know, I've had enough of them. And, you know, especially the, the world we live in now sort of, you know, edges ever closer to a dystopia. You know, sometimes we don't necessarily, or I don't necessarily feel like I'm gonna go and pick up the road and read that tonight, you, you know, because because I've just watched the news already and that was almost just as bad. Um, <laughs> so uh, my sort of, and, and that kind of, I think that fits kind of with my overall worldview. Um, like, uh, one of the, one of the old comedic writers I like, um, is, is Damon Runyon, who people know for his, his short stories that ultimately became the movie Guys and Dolls. And he was a big, uh, a gambling guy and a horse racing guy. So he was always obsessed with the odds of things. And he had this great phrase that all life is six to five against. And that's sort of, you know, you know that kind of, I feel I, that's sort of in keeping with my view that, you know, yes you know, sometimes the bad things happen and sometimes they happen a bit more than the good things. But, you, you know, the good things can still happen. And so when I was thinking about what the future might be like, um, the sort of, the like, one of the reviews described it as an all-too-human future. And I think that's a really good way of, a, a really good way of putting it, because I think, you know, sometimes when we when we think about the future, we do have this tendency to externalize things and think that, you know the aliens are going to come and enslave us or the robots are going to enslave us when actually you know if you go by the form book if you go by sort of human history you know we will probably mess it up ourselves you know fairly well but also like we probably won't mess it up quite as badly as you know the hunger games would suggest um but also you know we may get you know we may get things um we may get things wrong in in other ways and kind of kind of dumber ways. So so like the the thing about being locked out of the internet, for instance, um, is just entirely based on personal experience that several times a day um I forget the password to something and you know it sends it to your to your old email and then you know you haven't used that one since two thousand and seven. So you can't remember the password for that one. And then you have to, you know, it asks you for your name of your favorite pet and your first teacher. So 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 the joke is that on a on a particular day in 2037 um, a critical mass of humans forget those two bits of information and it sets off this sort of panic wave of forgetting which means that um, you know humans ultimately get themselves locked out of the internet and airplanes start falling from the sky and, and, and all of these things that are kind of just so dependent on on, on the infrastructure that we that, that, that we currently take for granted uh, and so that's kind of where the term mistopia comes from that um, and and I kind of it, it's funny in the audio form because I feel like it's kind of important to spell it out because I'm spelling it M-I-S-S hyphen-topia so it's you know it's kind of like the sense of, of like somebody's just missed the mark rather than because obviously the prefix M-I-S-topia would would sound like a more miserable place than, than we're trying to convey.
0: So that that's a really great starting point I mean it's it I do think though that as science fiction you are talking about the future you're talking about technology. And it is also somewhat philosophical. So I think all of that does qualify as science fiction. It just might be, I I would say that this is extremely timely kind of because of what you pointed out. I think there's a real um, uh, desire to read about technology but not a desire to engage with the darkness that usually comes with that. Um, And you see a lot of that um, coming out of Hollywood these days. So we need something a little bit lighter. So what really fascinates me about your book is your protagonist, Jared, a robot, that looks like a human because he's engineered from DNA, so human DNA. He shares some code with a toaster. So tell us a little bit, why did you choose this particular protagonist? Why is he a dentist? Why does he come from Ypsilanti, Michigan?
1: Absolutely, so, 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 so these are all great questions. Um, uh, so Jared is, um, I think in the book, we call them biological, uh, we, we call them androids, but they have, they have biological comp- computers for brains. And partly that's, I think that's born out of two things, which is one is um, with my medical background, I'm sort of always amazed at just how far the science currently is ahead of the conversation we have about it. You know, so so, so you're obviously hugely familiar with CRISPR technology, which um, I'm amazed it's not the only thing that we're all talking about all the time, just in terms of the you know the incredible possibilities, good and bad, um, with it. You know I come from um, from Edinburgh, in Scotland, um, which uh, probably our most famous um, our, our, our most famous person that comes from Edinburgh is is Dolly the sheep, who was who was cloned all the way back in I think nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety eight, and of course you know if you think that they were able to clone sheep twenty years ago. And you also think that, you know, Barbara Streisand's dog died and she had her dog cloned for $30,000. Um, like clearly, and, and just recently actually did like a couple of weeks ago, I read that they had, they had cloned some primates somewhere. Um, the technology to clone humans very clearly exists. Um, I think, you know, the, obviously there's huge ethical and legal implications around that. Um, but when of huge ethical and legal implications, ever stop humans doing anything. So, you know, my (laughs) system is there's a warehouse or a hollowed out volcano somewhere in the world where where, where, where humans are already being cloned. Um, uh, And so in in terms of, that was kind of one of the things that was interesting to me. And then like the the idea of a biological Android. Yes, so, so, so the basic thing is that if you wanted to make an Android, you know, what you would have to do. So obviously we've sequenced the human genome by this point. So. Consciousness remains, you know, I think one of the great mysteries of neuroscience and the great mysteries of life itself. If you were able to identify the bit of the human genome that coded for consciousness and you were able to swap in. And with CRISPR, you can swap things in basically at will at this point. You were able to swap in the source code for Windows 97. then oh if, no!
0: Please
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, then you would, might have a biological computer, but you know it would crash a lot because when, 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 when ninety seven. Um, so, um and you will know a lot more about this than me, and I, I've actually been, you know, every time I've said this, I've kind of got less and less certain of myself. But but you'll be able to tell me if, if it's true or not. But during the writing of this book, I was talking to a um, a. a, a a programmer friend, and they were sort of making the point that um, source code can actually often be sort of swapped, like, a bit, like he basically described it as cut and pasted from, you know, device to device to application to ap- application that, you know, there's a certain amount of, um, yeah, yeah, cutting and pasting um, that, that goes on. So the idea with, you know, Jared is that his operating system was originally developed for household appliances. So you know, the code that your that your toaster runs on, you know, ultimately evolved to be the code that's used in these in in in, in these androids. So so Jared is sort of um you know, I, I think it's part of his, you know, part of his programming is he's got this, you know, fairly high level command to always try and seem as reassuringly human as possible. Um and of course, you know, as an Android, that's just something he gets horrifically wrong. And uh um, you know, I feel like that's drawn from experience. I feel like I do that quite a lot as well. But um, uh, he, um, so so with the toaster, you know, he's always talking about, you know, he's always proudly talking about his ancestor, the toaster, in the way that you or I might talk about our grandparents or I, <laughs> you know, someone else. So um, so yeah, that's where um, that's where Jared um, comes from. And then, as we say, he, he's a bot, and the huge advantage that, I mean, the only advantage that humans are going to have over our androids which we call bots in film, um is our feelings because of course you know there's not much that my computer isn't better at doing than me and you know feelings is is you know ostensibly the the one thing so of course anytime an android shows any hint of feelings as humans we're going to be very against that and we're going to quickly have them wiped or incinerated so that's the sort of the, the predicament that that Jared finds himself in.
0: Right, and then he um, read, he watches the, the love story and discovers mm. that he has feelings. So then he starts this journey. So you wanna talk a little bit about why he goes to Hollywood, for example?
1: Sure, actually So um, when, when Jared begins to think he might have feelings, he's, he's first told this by, he's, he's a dentist because we, we make the androids do the jobs we don't want to do and dentistry being, be, being t- top of that list. Um, and of course the other joke is that um, uh androids will make brilliant dentists because they don't have empathy you know so, so <laughs> <laughs> just getting that tooth out straight away um, so um but w- when he begins to when they begin to suspect he might have feelings his friend who's a human doctor says um let's do an experiment and jared says oh brilliant i love experiments i love science i'm an android brilliant and so the experiment is go and see a movie and so he sends jared to see this movie and jared doesn't quite know why he's gone to the movie but At the end of the movie he notices that you know his shirt is soaking wet and he hasn't come from the ceiling he hasn't spilled a soda and he realizes that it must have come from his eyes and his logical conclusion is he must have had some allergies or something because you know androids don't have feelings so he goes back to the doctor and um the doctor says how was it and jared says well it was fine but i got these allergies (laughs) And um, and, and and the doctor says well you know what i didn't tell you is our experiment was actually it was a blind experiment because there was a bit of information that I didn't tell you. And what I didn't tell you was that the movie I sent to you was one of the most notorious tear-jerkers of the 20th century. Um, so uh, so, so that's the sort of um, the cue for for Jared to believe that, that he may be beginning to feel. And then the sort of the experiments with the movies continue. So, you know, he, he undergoes this kind of emotional awakening, um, which is sort of rapidly accelerated by seeing movies and the feelings that they, that they generate in him. Um, but of course, bots aren't allowed to go to the movies. And so, but yeah. Um, because it's, you know, it's a human pastime and it's a hint of feelings. So, um, when the Bureau of Robotics catch wind of this situation, they send a notice to Jared to, to attend for, for incineration. Um, and of course, you know, Jared being a dutiful bot is about to go, but, For one last sort of hurrah, the doctor decides to show him one last movie, and the movie is is Blade Runner, which is of Uh course you know about uh, um, you know about androids who feel. So you know, Jared sees Blade Runner, and of course he thinks it's the greatest movie ever made. And uh, he says to the doctor, "Look, if we could just get humans to see this movie because it's so moving, then." they wouldn't want to incinerate me because they'll know that, you know, bots with feelings were like, no one can watch Roy Batty die on that rooftop and talk about his memories being lost like tears and rain and think that he should be incinerated. And the doctor says, well, the problem is Jared, all humans already saw this movie. And Jared says, well, how can they, why do they still want to incinerate me? And the doctor sort of, you know, he's looking for some explanation. He says, well, they made this movie back before we had androids. And so, you know, humans now look at this movie and don't think, aren't androids sympathetic you know they look at it and think wow aren't humans so sympathetic we can even make androids seem sympathetic um and of course Jared this is where Jared's sort of fuzzy fuzzy robot logic kicks in and he says wait did you just say that if I was to write a movie about feeling bots because I'm an android myself and it moved humans then they wouldn't want to incinerate me and the doctor says no that's that's it I definitely did not say that and Jared said well no but that's that's the logical inference. So I am going to travel to Los Angeles and write my own movie and, you know, convince humans that they should permit androids like me to feel. And the doctor says, look, what on earth makes you think that you would be good at writing a movie? And uh, uh, Jared says, well, because movies are formula and androids are brilliant at formula. So, <laughs> so that's sort of what, uh, what sets him out on his quest.
0: Oh, that's just fascinating i love I love the darkness in there, though, the incineration and the notice from the bureau of robotics that's that makes my heart go pitter patter. Um, <laughs> uh, what's interesting about um, humans and robots and the whole question of you know sentient life and will robots exceed human intelligence at some point in our lifetime is that I think fundamentally humans fear that robots will become too much like us. And you know I think if you dig deep down, Humans never knew a weapon that they didn't want to develop. You know what I mean. So, I- I'm curious what you think about. Do we have to worry about robots having feelings in our lifetime? You set this in 2054. I think I'm going to still be alive. Do I have to worry about this? Uh,
1: um, I, I I would love to know the answer. I mean, I you know, partly my my take on this has always been that, um, you know. Technology makes my life infinitely easier. You, you, you know, here we are chatting on, chatting away, you know, through this miracle of video conferencing, um, uh, with our wireless headphones and 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 all the rest of it. And and so, you know, I'm a huge fan of the benefits of technology. And I don't, you know, I don't really see that it's sinister. I think, you know, my worry is just more. Um, yeah, that you know, Elon Musk will use it to incinerate the moon, or you know, you know, w- 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 what? Yeah, um, uh, there is, but there there was one quote which really um, hit me. You know, in the year before I started writing this book, um, I read uh, the book. I think it's called Superhumans by Nick Bostrom, who's the professor of the future of humanity at Oxford University. So, you know, as much as anyone is able to answer this question, he seems he seems like the guy, and in production book he uses this brilliant metaphor where he says our relationship to artificial intelligence is like a group of chickens finding a baby hawk and saying look at this thing we're going to raise it up to be our slave um so 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 he's obviously you know at the at the pessimistic end um uh but i, I mean should, should we be worried i feel like you're the person that would know the answer to this
0: you know i'm of two minds so i i like to you know be ignorant, blissfully ignorant and say, it's not going to be happening in my lifetime. So I'm not going to worry about it. I choose not to worry about it. I think I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about humans than I am the machines that we can create and what we do with them and how we shape society with them. Um, in, at least in the first phase, I don't, i don't believe and i know that elon musk and others do believe that we're going to achieve what they call singularity at some point in in the next um 30 years which essentially means that robots will achieve the same level of intelligence as humans and then quickly exceed it because that's the you know pathway and um i'm just i i'm not i like you i love technology i'm a huge technology buff um, I think where I see more sinister things happening, and I think you kind of hint at that in the book with the Bureau of Robotics, who created that humans, who created this rule that robots should be exterminated. Humans, right? So, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little bit more worried about humans, I think, than robots. But I'm I'm I think that your book is really timely. I think, in, in, especially in the current pandemic situation, to read something about technology that's a little bit lighter but has that kind of twisted humor. Um, I also read that you are, I think, set to make a film about it with uh, Edgar Wright as director and you're going to write the screenplay. Is that happening?
1: Yeah. Um, so so so, what a dream come true. And um, you know, I, like, so, so, so it is happening in the sense that you know all those things you said are true. Um, uh, I think you know I've been out here in in Los Angeles, you know, for long enough that you know they always tell you never to get excited until the cameras are rolling, um, and even then, don't open the champagne until. You, you, you know, the movies out in the in the theater. So um uh yeah, I mean it's I it's it's been come true and, and I've been working working on the screenplay and, and that's fantastic and um you know I think obviously there's a there's a pandemic of fruit right now and then also, you know, Edgar obviously is a, a very in demand human so um uh who knows but you know I'm I'm very excited and very hopeful but keeping my feet firmly on the ground.
0: Yeah, that's very exciting. I, and I know one, one question that um, authors, screenwriters get asked always is, what comes next? I know you just finished this uh, really intensive project and you're promoting it right now, but what, what are your plans uh, for uh, the next coming years? Yeah, well,
1: it's, it's, it's a really good question. And um, uh, when I, so for the last, so as, you, as we mentioned, there's been nine years between the previous book and, and this one. So for all of those nine years, when I was lamenting, not having written my novel, I, I promised myself that when I had the, you know, you know, when, whenever it was that the next book eventually came out, I would already be, you know, well underway on book three. So that, you, you know, I didn't get too distracted and, and, uh, and it wasn't another non, non, nine years. Um safe to say, I've done absolutely nothing on book three. <laughs> so, uh, um, I'm hoping it's not going to be another nine years. Um, uh, I definitely have a couple of big ideas that I'm sort of, you know, they're in that kind of percolating stage. Um, uh, but it's it's kind of funny because, um, you know, there's in the background there's always the sort of hamster wheel of screenwriting as well, and that's kind of, um, you know, historically how how I you know earned my living for the past decade, and so um, that sort of um, it, like, like, it's never just a question of, you know, what's the book I want to write. It's also like, you know, is, is there a job that I can do? Or, you know, so, so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure. And I think, again, like in, in the pandemic, it really feels like everything's kind of uncertain, isn't it? You know, they keep, I think, they keep trying to get back into production. And I think, you know, as we speak, so Batman was one of the big movies that started back and it suddenly stopped yesterday because someone someone on the set has coronavirus. Um, so, uh, um, who knows, but, but, but I think, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it does feel a bit like, you know, I keep reading that, you know, books are having this real, this real boom time and, 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 and this real, this real moment right now. And it does feel a bit like, you know, in, in, in the race to, to move into the future. Sometimes we forget, you know, some of the great stuff about, you know, our current and previous existences and, you know, perhaps the pandemic has given us a given, given us a bit more time to. To, to think about that and, and certainly for me um the, the satisfaction of you know having a having written a book and you know people re- read it is huge you know you know and i think perhaps you know because it is it is a lot more me than you know many of the screenwriting things i work on because you know a lot of the times you know when you work on those things it's you know it's somebody else's book or somebody else's idea or as we said you know there's there's 25 voices in the room and you're, and you're one of them. And you know, that's great. It's a privilege to be part of that, but um, there's something very unique about, you know, having people, having people read your book and and getting to talk to people about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I hope all the listeners go out and get set my heart to five uh, right away. It uh, came out on September one. That was earlier this week. And I think in all the forms, right? Audiobook, um, uh, as
1: well. I, 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 yeah, I have just discovered there's even a CD. If anyone is still, oh, wow. if anyone is still can still, someone play <laughs> CDs? I, I, like apparently someone somewhere can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, CD as well, folks, for for those future-oriented people. Um,
1: I, I, I'm looking into the VHS. <laughs> We're working on. Oh really? I don't.
0: I can't remember the last time I had something that played a VHS, but I still have a DVD player, so
1: good job yeah
0: yeah well thank you so much simon for coming on the show it was uh fascinating to talk to you about your journey and about your i think really special book
1: thank you so much thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it thank you